Welcome to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. Do not, do not adjust your television. I do look this good. I know many of you are saying, <laughs> what's Denzel uh, Washington doing wow. hosting Jason Whitlock's TV show? No, it's actually me. I look this good. We have a fantastic show planned for you today on this Thursday afternoon. Delano Squires, friend of the program, contributor Fearless. He's written a terrific column about Talking Points USA and their feud or banning of porn star Brandy Love. He's written a terrific column about it and how it applies to the black community and hip hop. And then we have a really special guest today, Megan Kelly. Mm. You guys know Megan Kelly, one of my favorite people on the planet. She's gonna join us and we'll talk about her feud with Naomi Osaka, Martina Navratilova, and many others. Megan Kelly ain't scared and neither am I. And so let's get into today's show. The sense of entitlement that caused 34-year-old broadcaster Maria Taylor to exit ESPN in a ridiculous and nasty contract dispute was built over the course of nearly 60 years. Yesterday, Taylor and ESPN president Jimmy Pataro jointly announced that her seven-year meteoric rise at the network had abruptly crashed and burned. Maria Taylor's out. Taylor and her representatives demanded a contract that rivaled 53-year-old ESPN employee Stephen A. Smith. Smith earns between eight and $12 million a year. He's worked at the company for the better part of two decades. For better or worse, he replaced Chris Berman as the face of the network. He has an audience and a following. Maria Taylor, he has an attitude and a striking appearance and a willingness to do anything in pursuit of power and money. She reminds me of my favorite character from the TV show Game of Thrones. You guys remember Cersei Lannister? Yeah, I loved her. She was evil. I guess that would make Rachel Nichols, Lady Marjorie, a deceased rival of Cersei's. In a desperate last minute attempt to leverage ESPN to meet her contract demands, Taylor, with assistance from the New York Times, torched Nichols. NFL legend Drew Brees and broadcaster Dave Lamont and all of King's Landing. Taylor pretended that a year-old private comment by Nichols, a white female co-worker, was the final piece of proof exposing the vicious systemic oppression Taylor endured while at ESPN while their management whisked her to the top of the industry. For the last year, Taylor sipped wine, saying, we shall overcome, stood on the neck and shoulders of George Floyd in a cash grab. Yes, I said that. Maria Taylor stood on the neck and shoulders of George Floyd in a cash grab. She played the race card and used George Floyd in her contract negotiations. I might be insulting Cersei Lannister with the Maria Taylor comparison. Maria Taylor's entitlement is 60 years in the making. Let me explain how Taylor got here, how at the tender age of 34, she convinced herself a white woman's private gossip made her worth $8 million a year. This all started in the mid-1960s when the Assistant Secretary of Labor, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, decided to research and write a study examining the plight of black Americans. His report was titled, the Negro Family, The Case for National Action. 
Published in 1965, the media referred to it as the Monaghan Report. Sparked by President Lyndon Johnson's War on Poverty Initiative and Civil Rights and the Civil Rights Movement, the Monaghan Report was five chapters long and called for the government to take unprecedented action in support of the black family. Monaghan wrote, in this new period, the expectations of Negro Americans will go beyond civil rights. Being Americans, they will now expect that in the near future, equal opportunities for them as a group will produce roughly equal results as compared with other groups. This is not going to happen, nor will it happen for generations to come unless a new and special effort is made. Monaghan continued, measures that have worked in the past or would work for most groups in the present will not work here. A national effort is required that will give a unity of purpose to the many activities of the federal government in this area, directed to a new kind of national goal, the establishment of a stable Negro family structure. The Moynihan Report was a direct call for investment in the black man. The Moynihan Report was a direct call for investment in the black man. In chapter four of the report, the report specifically addressed the problem of a black matriarchal culture. The report stated, a fundamental fact of Negro American family life is the often reversed roles of husband and wife. Negro husbands have unusually low power. That was directly stated in the report. It's easy to find the Moynihan Report online. We go click, go punch it into Google, find the link, read it for yourself. It reads like prophecy. Read the prop, read it for yourself. President Johnson initially loved the Moynihan Report. In June of 1965, at Howard University, he gave a speech co-authored by Moynihan based on the report. Two months later, the media demonized the Moynihan Report as racist and Johnson disavowed it, scrapped it from the War on Poverty and the Great Society initiatives. Let me crystallize what happened. The Moynihan Report called for investment in the black man and the restoration of the black family. Great society programs focused instead on investment in women and couldn't care less about traditional family structure. The spoils of the civil rights movement went to women. The feminist movement overtook the civil rights movement. The black woman licked her finger, stuck it in the air, figured out which direction the winds were blowing, and it wasn't blowing the black man's direction, and the black woman switched teams. She became a feminist. You may not like what I'm saying, but that's exactly what the hell happened. Wow. Patrick Moynihan diagnosed a cancer destroying black America, the emasculation and the marginalization of the black man. The left rejected his diagnosis. They didn't trust the science, so they framed it as racist, offered the black woman 20 pieces of silver, mm -mm. offered the black woman 20 pieces of silver, Come on, man. and the cancer metastasized all over, and then they doubled down on the black matriarchy. That's what happened. 
Maria Taylor is the byproduct of the black matriarchy, of 55 years of relentless investment in and celebration of the black woman, and the exact opposite treatment of the black man and the black family. That's what's happened the last 55 years. I don't care if you don't like it, those are facts. They invested in women, they invested in black women, and they neglected and set about destroying the black man and emasculating him. For the last 55 years, all Maria Taylor has heard and every other black woman, you can do no wrong. You are the proper leader of black culture. And you don't need a black man for anything beyond occasional casual sex. The whole system has been rigged to create black Cersei Lannisters. I don't care if you don't like it, it's the facts, it's the truth. 55 years ago, the Monaghan Report specifically addressed the widening educational and achievement gap between black women and black men. Those gaps are far wider today. But all you hear about is, oh God, we gotta elevate these black women. You'll never hear anybody talking about elevating the black boy, man, anything. There is no focus on us. You know what we get? We get George Floyd memorials. You know what we get? We get Ahmaud Arbery birthday celebrations and bashes. We get black criminals raised from the dead, resurrected as pagan gods. And you wonder why I'm pissed off half the time? Every bit of the chaos, dysfunction, degeneracy, violence, and lack of achievement everyday black people are living with today was documented predicted and discussed in 1965. A clear game plan and solution were called for in 1965, two years before I was born. We let the media convince us that investing in the black man and the black family was racist. Let me repeat that. Say it again. We let the media convince us that investing in the black man and the black family was racist. Mm. We fell for that shit. Mm. You wonder why corporate media is obsessed with framing everything as racist? It works. It works as a way of getting black people to make decisions against our best interests. The left wants you to believe America's systemically racist so that they can tear up the Constitution and rewrite it in a way that gives elites more power and control so they can keep burying you. Maria Taylor's left-wing collaborators will provide her a soft landing at, M at NBC, where she will stand as a multi-million dollar symbol of the rewards for serving the matriarchy, feminism, and the BLM, LGBT, QIA plus alphabet mafia. How long are we gonna go for this? Jim, I've set a real fire. I, I'm, I'm, we're not gonna joke about this, we're gonna talk about this. I can't even crack a joke on it. There's, there's nothing to even crack a joke about. For this one right here, you, you knock this one here out the park. Honestly, this right here is First of all, let me just say this. A lot of people might not even, people don't even, might not even realize what you're talking about, man. I remember a time growing up that the government actually paid black women to not have a man in the house. As a matter of fact, I think it was called the, the, the AFDC. 
aid to families with dependent children. Which stipulated you couldn't get the check if there was a man in the house. And it also said that the more babies you had, the more the check went up. I mean, we, we, I mean, this it. Now keep it this. Keep this. That's in, the era you was born into. To <laughs> honestly, but but here's the thing, though. That that originally, a lot of people don't know. That originally came from the 1930s bill, which was the ADC bill, which was the aid to dependent children bill. Okay, that was for the families who had husbands and fathers who was off at the war. Okay, got killed in the war. Well, mm-hmm. yeah, fighting for the country. Right. Okay, now this one right here. I don't know what the hell this one is. Well, it was the deal. And it's just like I talked yesterday with Boyce Watkins. This is the deal we cut. The civil rights movement actually worked. And we got to the table and had a chance and an opportunity to cut a deal like, how do we improve things? Because that's what Patrick Moynihan did on, on his own accord, like, hey, man, I'm living in the 1960s. Let me and my department do some research and write up a paper about what we should do in the middle of this civil rights movement that's coming to a conclusion. They're about to pass the Civil Rights Act of 1965. He comes out with his research in the Moynihan Report, and it directly calls for, hey, look, if we don't do something about the back family structure, which was in far better shape then than it is now. Don't nobody believe that. But he could, well, it's just factually true. Exactly. But he could already <laughs> see where this was going and mm-hmm. was already calling it a crisis. And so we get to 1965, Lyndon Johnson hops on board. And it's like, yeah, I like this. I'm gonna go give this speech at Howard University, the black Harvard out in DC, And basically, I'm going to champion this, that this is what we need to do, invest in the black family if we're really going to provide equality. The media jumps in and convinces us, (laughs) investing in the black man, are you Who would do that? Are you crazy? And they did it because that we were never the real agenda. Never the real agenda. They despise Martin Luther King and what those men from the church represented and were pushing for and came in and let the feminist movement and a few years later, the LGBT movement come in and hijack all that was won. And all and and I'm just sorry. And I don't care if people get upset with me. I I, I really. I, I, I got to be careful. I got to yeah, be careful. Yeah, yeah. I don't care who gets upset with me. But they took that deal of, yeah, don't invest in them, invest in us. The black woman did. Mm-hmm. Took that deal. We're going to go with the feminists. We're going to go with the LGBT movement. Screw the black man. And look at the condition we are in now. Look at the chaos, dysfunction, degeneracy that's rampant within our community We took a bad deal and we let the media convince us that investing in us and investing in a legitimate family structure was a mistake for black people. I I don't even know if you could call it. I mean, you were paying people, Jason. You were paying people. You were incentivizing them to not. You know, I mean, remember that it, it was I don't know if you remember, but hell on Good Times, there was an episode of Good Times where the welfare worker was coming and you, you had to hide because it, it was, a. you know, this is man, th- th- this thing happened. 
It actually happened. And now, in the words of Malcolm, the chickens have come home to roost. Chickens certainly have come home to roost. We're going to take a very short break. Okay. We're going to bring our man Delano Squires in from Washington, D.C. to talk about this and his own column. But before we go, I've got to tell you about my friends at Built Bar. That's B-U-I-L-T, Built Bar. They have done it again. I had a Built Bar this morning. I worked out this morning. I came into the office. I needed something to eat. Had a little Built Bar. Picked me right up. Got me ready for this show. I had Corey hand me one. And after trying it, I should have <laughs> had him hand me two. The salted caramel. Wow! Fire. It's really crazy that these things can taste this good and still be so good for you. Low in calories, sugars, and carbs, Built Bars are becoming an office favorite, not just with myself, but everyone that works here. These are some of the best protein bars I've personally tasted and help keep me going during the day. Built Bar also are also the new official partner of the U.S. Olympic track and field teams for this year's Summer Olympics in Tokyo. Go to Built.com and use promo code FEARLESS to save 15% off your first order. Use promo code FEARLESS for 15% off at Built.com. All right, welcome back to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I am Jason Whitlock. All right, you know, Jimmy and I are both single. Jimmy's been married. I haven't been. We need a, a married man's perspective uh, on, on some of this. And so we're going to roll out to uh, Washington, D.C. and bring in the actual star of the show, Delano Squires. You guys have seen The new star of the show. Yeah, the new star of the show. <laughs> the actual star of the show. Uh, he's written a terrific column about Talking Points USA and, and Brandy Love and those issues. But we're going to start with my column and the fire I just started, the monologue I just did. We want to get Delano's take. And Delano, I've said some very uh, provocative things that I believe uh, some people may be offended by them. But Mm -hmm. when I think about the kind of conversations we need to have in the black community, uh, a lot of it comes down to leadership and who is actually going to who actually can be the leader of the black community and an effective one that takes us in in a better direction. And so I'll start here based off my my column. Are black women, in your view, more committed to the feminist movement or to black men? Mm. That's a great question. Um, I think it depends on which women you talk to. Uh, I've, I've started to notice a growing trend of black women who completely reject feminism, who see it as a destructive force, who understand that um, the, the goals of feminism often uh, run counter to the goals of the women who want to get married and have kids and raise families together. Um, because the feminist movement says that the highest, uh, the highest goal that a woman can aspire to is to be a, a productive worker in the economy and to pursue her own um, dreams and, and goals and aspirations. And that the family, the traditional family and marriage specifically um, uh, makes it harder to do those things. And that marriage in and of itself is an oppressive force. And that children, instead of being viewed as blessings from God, um, are burdens that slow down your ability to um, reach your you know, career aspirations. So I think if you talk to you know, women who've been, been to college, graduated from college, 
have degrees in, in you know, feminist theory or queer theory or any of the, the, those types of social sciences, they probably will have very different views. And I, I think if you talk to women who are younger, I'd say probably younger than 25, um, many of them will have different views. But what I've noticed is that as women start to get older and realize some of the things that they've been sold don't necessarily hold up in the real world, I think some of them are starting to change their views on that. And so when you say you're hearing this conversation, is that because you're hearing it at church and women that are more committed to a traditional Christian point of view? And, and maybe the reason I hear different voices is maybe I'm, I'm taking it from the workplace or social gatherings or social media even and, and the, maybe, again, maybe it's an indication I'm running in the wrong circles, or, 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 or am I just looking at the results that our uh, marriage and divorce rate is astronomical high, kids born into single parent homes are astronomically high, and I'm looking at all that evidence and just saying that, man, we're, and look, some of it is on us. We're just not committed to each other. We're at war with each other. And I yeah. think this, we were set at war with each other, starting really, again, from the beginning, but it, it a new strategy was in, introduced in the 1960s. Yeah, so I, I think, you know, when you're talking about a group that's this large, right, there are 40 million black people in, in, about 40 million black people in the United States of America, you're gonna get all different types of opinions and views. But if I could sort of split out, you know, there's, I would say there's probably a small but very vocal group who see themselves as activists, see themselves as pushing back against anything that they see as oppression. Um, I think they tend to dominate on, in the social media sphere. Um, so these are the ones, again, I'm thinking of one, one um, self-described radical feminist professor um, who, said that the, the men who, the black men who voted for Donald Trump did so because uh, something to the effect of they, they hate, a combination of hating black women and wanting to be like white men. Um, that, that was her contribution to the conversation. I think that, that number is fairly small, but again, they're very vocal and influential. I think, uh, to your point, uh, the women who have a more traditional view and oftentimes informed by the church, uh, generally speaking, what I've noticed is that they hate feminism and they're very clear about that. They see it as a, as a destructive force. Many of them um, want to be married. Um, they want godly husbands. And, and many of them also use the, the, the dreaded S word, right? They, they will say, I wanna be married to a man that I can submit to, right? I can submit to his leadership um, and we can build a family together. The feminist movement says something different. It's, it's not necessarily against submission, women submitting to men, as long as that man is your boss and not your husband. So. I think those are two different groups, and then I think there's a lot of people in the middle who aren't necessarily thinking about these things. Um, these things are not necessarily front of mind, but they have been influenced by um, the feminist movement because of the feminist movement's ability to, to bend the culture. Um, so I don't necessarily think that you know uh, a low-income black woman in, in a large city who is having children you know, outside of marriage and she may have two kids by two different guys. I don't necessarily think she's doing that because of feminism per se. Um, not that she's thinking uh, actively about you know, bell hooks or, or some other feminist scholar, 
I think it's more so that feminism has, has for the better part of you know, 50, 60 years, has said, you know, you don't need marriage. Um, marriage is oppressive and you know, women can uh, raise their children in, in a commune, in, in a village uh, with one another, with extended family, with extended family, with kinship networks. And I think that has become the mood in, in many respects um, across the country, um, not, not just, necess- not just in, in, in the black community. And I'll say one more thing. I think another place where you see this is in um, around the issue of abortion. In in New York City, which um, New York City has the the most is a city with the largest number of black people. Um, about 50% of black babies are killed in the womb before they even draw their first breath. I don't think it's any coincidence that Planned Parenthood um, started in New York City. Uh, Margaret Sanger started it. I think it was one clinic in Brooklyn, and from there, so it grew into Planned Parenthood. Um, and nationally, Black women account for close to 40% of all abortions. So, again, as always, the irony here is thick. The people who talk about systemic racism and the value of Black lives are always con- conspicuously absent when it comes to that particular issue. And I think all of those things can be traced back to the influence that feminism has had on on American culture more generally. I don't know how familiar you are with the Moynihan Report, but I have read the entire document, and I'm someone that thinks that uh, 1965 and the Moynihan Report and the Great Society initiatives and all that, pivotal point for black people. I I think the civil rights movement was effective in causing this country to acknowledge it had to change, and then there were decisions to be made, okay, we're gonna grant you freedom and all your rights, and then what can we do uh, moving forward to make sure that you're able to take advantage of these new freedoms and rights? Am am I wrong for thinking the Moynihan Report is still very relevant today? Absolutely, the the report is relevant, and even um, more specifically, the, the circumstances that it describes are relevant. I think if you take any community and you make it so that, or you create conditions where the vast majority of children are being born to unmarried parents, there are gonna be a lot of impacts and, and effects to that. Some social, economic, um, educational, that's gonna affect participation in, in you know various types of uh, criminal activity. That's across the board. So. Um, I think what the Moynihan Report was pointing out um, was very important at that time and continues to be because we've seen that one generation of you know great society programs, uh, expansion of welfare and so on and so forth did to the black community what you know hundreds of years of slavery and Jim Crow couldn't, which is break up the black family. Um, you know, a growth in the federal bureaucracy, Right where the government chain went from Uncle Sam to Daddy Sam, um, caused and, and incentivized black women to divorce their husbands and marry the government. Um, and in many respects, that relationship still stands today. Uh, it created opportunities and created incentives for men to abandon their responsibilities to their children. Um, and it also created incentives for, to, for women to, as I said, um, in effect, end up marrying the government. And, that's not, I'm not trying to you know, make personal attacks, it's, just, it's, an, it's an observation. And I'm not against um, social welfare programs that provide a safety net. But 
what you see is that these programs uh, over generations go from a safety net to a hammock and eventually end up in a spider web where you'll have multiple generations of, of women who are uh, using those types of programs as their main uh, source of income. I'm not saying it's most black women, I'm not even saying it's most uh, low income black women, but the phenomenon is large enough where it still has impacts in, in our culture today. Delano, I wonder if it comes across to you, but I sit here in 2021 and I hear about so many programs and initiatives and promotion directed at black women. The whole mm. Yaz Queen movement and uh, You Go Girl and Black Girl Magic and just, but it's, just, it's not just slogans in terms of programs, set-asides, we have to, uh, and again, all the way down to there's got to be a black female host of NBA countdown. There's just and I hear nothing. I, I, I hear nothing about programs for black boys. I hear about movements for dead black men who resisted hmm. arrest. And how can we honor and celebrate them? Let's celebrate the dead. I don't, I'm unaware of any initiatives specifically directed at the development of black boys and the concern and the gap. Black women are so outpacing black men. The most help, and this was true in 1965 when Moynihan was writing the report. He was saying this like, man, black women are, and girls are actually achieving at a rate a lot faster than black men. I'm just wondering, am I wrong for feeling like, hey, look, because it sounds like I'm mad about all the help or what support being thrown at black women. The only reason why I'm mad about it is because there's none for us. And black men are in the most dire conditions and people running around in the street uh, trying to honor George Floyd. What about Jimmy's two boys? They ain't robbed nobody and they're not strung out on fentanyl. Uh, what about them? Can we get out in the streets and direct programs at them rather than building statues for George Floyd? That's where my frustration comes in. Yeah, and, and I understand that frustration. I think, again, there, there are a couple of different things that are interacting together. I think, generally speaking, the phenomenon you described between black women and black men in terms of women being promoted and oftentimes seemingly at the detriment to the detriment of men is one that you see playing out you know in in broader society as well um, a lot of programs are uh, geared towards women so programs you know to get women interested um, in stem fields and, and some of those I've actually I'm, I'm I'm in favor of those things right I think if women want to want to have careers in science technology engineering and mathematics um, the pathway should be open for them. But sometimes you get, it gets to the point where there are programs to encourage women to go to college, and there are already more women in college than men. And I think we just get so used to the, to the, um, <laughs> the paradigm of men oppressive, men oppressors, women oppressed, white people oppressors, black people oppressed, um, you know, so on and so forth. So what ends up happening is that even as conditions change, our thinking about these issues um, does not change. And I think one of the things that, again, the feminism, the feminist movement does or did and, and still does today, I would argue, is that um, it encourages women to see 
the, the gains that I'm talking about oftentimes as gains for themselves and not necessarily um, you know, gains for the, the broader community, so to speak. And part of that is just, I think in many respects, it's just human nature. Um, there may be some women who disagree you know, with what I'm saying now, and they'll say it sounds sexist and, and you know, misogynist, but very few of them, particularly I'm, I'm thinking about you know, professional, professional black women, highly educated black women, very few of them want to marry a man who they have to support. So on one side, publicly they'll say, no, I, I, you know, women should have all these accolades and we should pursue all these things and, and the men need to get over it and not be jealous. And, and to some respect, I, I agree with that. I don't think you know, insecure guys make for good mates anyway. But at the end of the day, they all want someone who they feel is a capable and suitable leader. Um, some women may talk a good game and say, you know, I'm, I'm an alpha woman, and they, they want a guy who, you know, may be a little bit more submissive. But long term, after a while, they just they lose respect for men like that. So I think to the extent that any movement undermines the ability for men to um, become um, uh, gainfully employed to be leaders in their home and in their community um, and to pit them against the women um, you know, in, in their own communities, I think that that movement is doing people a, a grave disservice. I'm gonna throw you a bit of a curveball because okay. uh, I'm just thinking about this in the moment and thinking about my Game of Thrones analogy. Cause, and I love that TV show for the first three or four seasons because I thought it was a great explanation of what women women and men will do in the pursuit of power. And and they'll do anything. And I said this yesterday, Stannis Baratheon burned his daughter at the stake. Cersei Lannister, who I referenced in my uh, monologue today, blew up, burned down King's Landing, burned burned up, torched her enemy, Lady Marjorie. Like, people will do anything in pursuit of power. And I honestly think that from Stacey Abrams to Oprah Winfrey to Maria Taylor, black women have fallen in love with their power and are no different than anybody else. Hillary Clinton, who gets a taste of power and anything, and they will step over and step across anybody in pursuit of that. And, and that's, and I actually think, and this is where my bottom line point is, I actually think a lot of men are afraid of women and are afraid of being cut off from that honey spot that we all, a lot of us love to enjoy and uh, that black women are actually in control, even in marriage, and again, I don't want you to talk about your own personal situation, but even in marriage, because it's talked about in the Morningham Report, that in 1965, he was like, wow, black men have no power in their relationship. This is the whole roles are reversed between husband and wife. And he's talking about in 1965. In 2021, my God, I can only imagine yeah. what it's like. Any, could you react to any of that? Sure. Um, I think uh, th- those dynamics, I think, you know, have, have been at play for, for quite a while. Um, I know you've heard the saying that, you know, black women are the, are the backbone of the black community. I don't know how many other groups see it that way. To, to me, there's a disconnect between the women who say that and say that with pride 
and then in the next breath say, we're overworked, we're tired, we're unprotected, um, and nobody's looking out for our interests. And as I said, I think there's a, there's a certain tension there in wanting to um, be out front. And you even see this in, in Black Lives Matter, right? It's two, th- three women who are the face of the movement. Oftentimes when I saw protests, there were, there were women you know, at, the front, at the front lines. And again, part of this is a criticism of the men who, for one reason or another, don't see it as necessary for them to step to the front. Um, but part of it is I think some of the some of those women in those movements, they they do think that women should be centered and should be uh, leading the black community. And some of them say, I mean, quite openly, they say um, black women save democracy. Um, black women are going to you know lead the black community out of whatever issue is going on. Um, and I, I just don't think that they understand why the two things that they say, we we're stressed, we're overworked, we're unprotected. and we want to continue to be at the forefront um, are, are not, you know, uh, congruent and not, and not in, in harmony with one another. I do think that many men are afraid of women, to be quite frank. Um, I was going to say for a slightly different reason than, than you said, um, and particularly men who have a public profile, I just think that they are afraid of being labeled as sexist, misogynist, um, and they don't want to be, they don't want, and I'm going to paraphrase a, a, an article um, from the root and and from very smart brothers, the 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 blog that you know the root I think ended up buying out, is a lot of these men don't want to be seen as having the same relationship to black women as they think white people have to black people, which means they don't want to be seen as the people who are holding women down and keeping them back from being able to achieve all of this that they want to achieve. So no matter what types of things go on in the community, they'll sit back and if it seems even remotely critical of women, they, they, they will save that criticism for private discussions with one another at the barbershop. They just won't say it publicly. And that's why I said we need, we need more fearless and men so, because, not as I say, because that, that, I see that as a, as, a, as a sign of cowardice in, in many respects. And so what I hear and what I believe is that, because I think you're 100% accurate that, that race plays a role in this and we don't want to be like white men and we don't want to be oppressors. And so uh, again, when you interpret all of life through the eyes of race mm-hmm. and you think your purpose in life is to be the opposite of the white man, that's a path to destruction. And, and, and what you won't hear a lot of these people, particularly on the left and, the, and the, the matriarchs, and you'll never hear them talk about a biblical perspective. Or if they do, it's like, well, there's this biblical perspective, but that ain't what I'm doing. And, you know, that doesn't apply to me. I'm, you know, I'm running a hell of a dictatorship over here. And, you know, the, the, you know, granting, submitting to the, the point of view of, of God or a man or getting in a relationship where I have to submit to my husband in any way. That's not happening. That, that, I know that's what God wants and all that, but <laughs> I'm different. I'm special. Yeah. I'm a cold ass chess player and I can run this whole thing. And, and I'm Keisha Lance Bottoms. I'm Stacey Abrams. I'm Oprah Winfrey. I'm this and I'm that. And, and, and I'm just sorry. I look at the results and the results aren't good. 
we, we have been getting slaughtered for 60 years. The overwhelming yeah. majority. Are there certainly guys like yourself and myself, Uncle, that, that have slipped through the cracks and, and made it to some degree? But overall, but, 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 but overall, I mean, if you just the education gap, the wealth gap, all, all these prop, the, the mass incarceration, just the lack of family structure. And and and, yeah. and and the degeneracy and and the, the whole defining of blackness as as hip hop, all of the, it's all biblically unsound, and we're all pursuing a racial agenda rather than any sort of godly like agenda, and it's leading to our destruction. I, l- let me. I, I want to ask you this, Delano, and and then we'll switch to your cow. Mm-hmm. I believe that the feminist and the LGBT community are the biggest winners from the civil rights movement. That again, when in time, <laughs> Martin Luther King and them led a war, and when it got time to, to divvy up the, the spoils of that war, <laughs> white woman slipped in there, the LGBT community slipped in there, and said, hey, black women, follow us, and they got all the spoils, in black my view. The, uh. <laughs> what well, happened what was, <laughs> Am I, I don't know. Am, am I exaggerating that point? No, I don't think so. And and it's, it's so interesting because right now, especially when I look at, you know, commercials and particularly since, you know, last year, it seems, and I don't know if you guys noticed this, but more and more, it seems like there's a concerted effort to tie um, blackness to the LGBTQ um, community. Uh, it, and again, it, I, I see it all the time. And Sometimes you'll see that they'll, they'll talk about, you know, the pride flag and then reference specifically, you know, black and brown bodies. And uh, I do think in many respects that, you know, some of the gains for both women and, you know, LGBT, you know, Americans are right in line with the civil rights movement, right? So access to education and health and housing. But I think what you've seen is things go even further than that because most movements are never satisfied with just enough. They, they're, they're called movements for a reason, right? Because people always say there's more territory to be captured. And I think what you've seen over the last you know, 50, 60 years is um, a, a desire for women who say, you know, I want to be able to go and work and support myself, particularly if, I don't, if I'm not married and I don't have kids. And now it's you know, to the point where, as I said, that even for married women, oftentimes that is the seen as the pinnacle of success. It's not uh, family and building and sustaining family. It's being able to climb the corporate ladder. And the same thing with the LGBT community. It's, it's not just we want our rights to be ex- uh, accept, um, accepted. We, we want our, our rights just like anyone else. It's we want our position, our worldview to be affirmed and accepted. And if you don't affirm it and accept it, then you yourself are, are a bigot and you know a homophobe or transphobe. So uh, I, I definitely think that both of those movements have piggybacked on the civil rights movement, oftentimes in ways that, that are detrimental. But I, I want to say one thing really quick, because you, you made a great point about, about worldview and about the dangers of viewing everything through the lens of race. And one of those dangers uh, comes out, I think, in the way that black folk today, how we talk about ourselves. Um, this is why I, I reject any you know, discussion in which black people call themselves slaves or say that we're enslaved 
Because when you say that and think that about yourself, what will end up happening is that somebody, and particularly the person you think is oppressing you, will sell you garbage and nonsense and self-destruction, but they'll call it freedom. And if you think you're a slave, you'll reach for it and say, yes, now I'm finally free. And and I, I think about that when it comes to, and again, I'm gonna go back to an issue that's very important to feminists, which is, which is abortion. And I don't understand how black folk can vote 90 plus percent for a party whose message to us is, you should kill more of your children. Because when mm. the, the cigarette companies, the liquor stores, the predatory lenders, the check cashing places, when they set up shop in the black community, Come on, Delano. The, the NAACP, they, they'll say, uh, th- uh, these are predatory companies, right? They're trying to poison our bodies and corrupt our minds and take our money. But when Planned Parenthood sets up 80% of their facilities in black and brown communities, the, dem- the response from the Democratic Party is, no, this is a good thing. We, we think you should do more of this. And the fact that we vote for that because we think that the other side is racist doesn't make any sense. I can't think of any black leader from the past who would accept from someone that they say is oppressing them, because for many of these folks, they think all white people are oppressing them. And the message from your oppressor is, you should kill more of your offspring. I don't know any king that would think that way. I don't know any queen that would think that way. But when these various movements, these subversive movements are able to separate us, And instead of thinking as a a unit, a family, a collective, we think as individual actors, then they can turn, you know, the men against the women. And ultimately what happens, uh, the result of that is that the children suffer. You made a great point. And to button up that topic, it, same thing they did with the Moynihan report in terms of oh, something that was about to be good for you, the investment in the black family, we're going to frame it as racist. And we are, oh, yeah, it's racist. We don't want more black family. It, it, it's crazy. They've been doing the same thing for 60 years and we are 100 years and we keep falling for the same stuff. You wrote a terrific column today about Talking Points USA and Brandy Love, the porn star who is a conservative. She writes for the Federalist. Talking Point USA was like, nah, I don't think we want you speaking to our young students. Pornography is a bridge too far. You think that's a message that applies to us as it relates to hip hop, that perhaps we should treat rap the same way. Go ahead and elaborate. Yeah, I mean, the the dust up, you know, online with conservatives as it relates to the Brandy Love issue, I thought was really, um, interesting, and, and I think it could be instructive for, for the black community. And, and really quick, what it was is that there are certain conservatives, they tend to be Christian or, or religious or have a, a particular you know, moral framework who say that pornography is inconsistent with conservatism. And their view is that, um, that the, the body has been created, that God created all of humanity, and that using one's body to sell sex in that particular way is inherently degrading um, in the same way that, you know, it would be if you use your iPhone as toilet paper, right? You're using it, but that's not what it was created to do. So for them, they see that type of degradation as something that conservatives should not endorse. And on the other side are the people who say, well, we should be a big tent, we should be practical and pragmatic, and we should do whatever works for political expediency, and we shouldn't um, purge people from our movement because we need everyone we, we can get to beat the left. 
And I, I, I see that as a good parallel um, for the black community where we can ask ourselves, what are, what are our boundaries? What constitutes too far in the black community? And to this point, too far has been any political position that can be painted as conservative. Now, we'll let in our cultural border patrol, you know, our, our cultural border patrol will let in, you know, gang violence, they'll let in, um, you know, degradation, they'll let in drug abuse, they'll let in stripper culture, they'll let in all those things. All, anyone who pushes that type of um, lifestyle is more than welcome at the NAACP awards, at the BET awards, they're welcome at the proverbial cookout. But if you come, if you come in and you quote, you know, uh, um, a ruling from Cl Justice Clarence Thomas, or you quote Thomas Sowell, or you quote Shelby Steele, um, then that's a, that's a bridge too far. We say, you know what, we'll keep the smut, just we, we wanna keep out the, you know, the, the, the political beliefs that are a little bit right of center. So I think this is, you know, we're not the first ones to bring this up. This has been this tension between wanting to support an art form that we see as speaking truth to power and trying to uh, curb its excesses and particularly the things that I mentioned, this tension has been there for the better part of about 30 years. Um, but I think it's high time for the black community to have an honest conversation with itself and say, you know what, we wouldn't support this type of, this type of artistry if it was coming from white men. If it was white men who, who had pictures or had lyrics where they were shooting and killing black men, who, who had black women you know, dancing around in bikini bottoms and they were grabbing their butts and sliding credit cards down their backsides, there's no way that we as a community would buy into that. I don't see why we should do it um, just because it's black men pushing those images. So I think, as I said, it's time to have that conversation. And it, at this point, it'll it's, it may end up being a mainstream conversation because Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion are not just um, you know, popular among black people. Now their influence may be different because, and I said this in the column, the, the champions of diversity and inclusion always say that representation matters, meaning specifically that people are more likely to emulate behaviors that they see uh, being exhibited by people who look like them. And you can't make that argument if you want more doctors and lawyers and then come back and say it doesn't matter when it comes to hip hop. So if, if they actually believe that, then we should ask ourselves, what is it that, um, you know, elevating and celebrating Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion, what message does that send to little black girls and black boys, you know, across the country? Delano, I'm trying, I beat my, how did we get here that, and I can remember this from my childhood, if your grades were too good, you're acting white. If your English was too proper, you're acting white. white. And I don't understand how parents, responsible black people, allow this to become the standard without objecting. The only thing we object to passionately is, again, like you said, if you cross that line and, and make it seem in any way that you agree with conservative white people over liberal white people, that's hmm. the line too far, you're kicked out of the neighborhood, you're, you're a pariah in society. But all of this, everything like that is negative, if, if, if the crack of your butt is showing, you're acting black, 
If you've spent all of your money on gold chains, you're acting black. If 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 you're dealing dope and rapping mm. about it, you're acting black. I, I, I'm just trying to as I talk this through, I, I just wonder how we deal as black people, how we deal with the fact that I th- white people in the privacy of their homes, liberal or conservative are looking at like what we're co-signing for and what we're allowing. They're like, man, that's crazy. Do they have any standard for themselves other than, man, you better agree with these liberal white people? Yeah, when you ask the question how we got here, um, like like many things, it's, it's complex. I think part of it is that black artists and entertainers have always enjoyed a different sort of position in the black community than than their white peers. So for us, our artists, our entertainers, and our athletes um, use their craft, their minds, their bodies to push back um, both through their, their, their output, right? The things that they sang or said or did, they push back on the racist stereotypes that were so prevalent um, you know, throughout our country's history. Some of them also joined the civil rights movement and were, were vocal leaders. So those, um, th- those positions, just much like the black preacher, have always enjoyed a particular type of relevance in our community. So I, I think that's how positionally um, rappers have been able to, to wield influence. I think one of the other things, and this goes back to what we were talking about before, is that as the family is weaker, right, as a, the family has grown weaker and mm. other forces have grown stronger, the, the, uh, the, the virus that may cause one person to have, you know, a slight headache for half a day causes, you know, much, much more severe symptoms in people who, who just lack some of that social immunity. And when families are weak, um, when parents are struggling to make ends meet, when dads are absent, it's no surprise that the streets end up raising kids. And, and what you see is then art imitating life. And I'm thinking like in Chicago with the drill music scene, a guy will go from a shooter one day to a rapper the next day to being, uh, to shooting again the next day to finally being shot at and killed the next. Um, and I think you, you see, as I said, that art imitating life in such a way that it's hard to deny um, that, that those dynamics are at play. So I think positionally, any public person in the black community is going to enjoy a certain level of influence. The problem is that unlike um, their, their sort of you know, artistic ancestors, today's artists use that influence for, for you know, ill gains. So for them, it's, hey, I can make myself rich. And it's funny because when, when we're having this discussion about hip hop, it is one of the only times where you will hear um, black folk, both on the left and the right, say, oh, it's the parents' responsibility. When, when we talk about education gaps in school, it's the school's responsibility, it's the government's responsibility. When we talk about economics, it's somebody else's responsibility. When we talk about kids, you know, leading healthy lifestyles and, you know, juvenile diabetes and all these other um, illnesses, it's the government's responsibility. But when it comes to the area in which the criticism is going to be focused, particularly on young black men, now it's time to say we need parents. Parents are the ones who, who are dropping the ball. So it's, 
I think the the black leadership class in, in many respects, um, th- their own their only motive their primary motivation is to not give fodder to white racists. So anything that they think would would empower racist white people um, and let them off the hook, so to speak, they they have no interest in dealing with publicly. And that's why I said in in the article, the biggest problem with airing dirty laundry is not that other people see it is that the people who have the dirty laundry are walking around in filthy clothes. And, and everyone can see that the types of things that we push and normalize and commodify in our communities are unproductive. And no matter what people like Max Kellerman or Chris Hayes would say, you know, as they, or, or even Jay Billis, as they, you know, nod their head to hip hop, they wouldn't allow that type, that type of language or that type of culture in their own household. And, and that's why for me, Whenever I write things or, or, or speak on these issues, that, that tends to be my standard. You know, well, I have a, a biblical standard. Okay, what does God say about this particular situation? But I have a practical standard, and it's simple. I don't co-sign, defend, or encourage anything in somebody else's household that I wouldn't in mine. And it's that simple. If I'm not going to co-sign calling, you know, my kids calling each other the, the B word or H word or any other nonsense like that, I'm not going to defend it for other people's children. And I think when we as a black community start to, to uh, think more along those lines, like, you know what, it doesn't matter who is doing the degrading. If it's degrading to us, we don't want any part of it. I think you will start to see the, 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 the supply change if our demand um, of artists starts to change. But the problem is too many people are invested. You know, too, not just the artists, but the, the urban radio stations, the um, you know the brands that sell use these artists to to sell cars and sell liquor and sell clothes, all of those people would be taking bread out of their own mouth. So they would rather um, sell this self-destructive lifestyle to our kids um, so that they could put a, a few more dollars in their own pocket. Delano, we're gonna pick up this conversation again tomorrow. Okay, I gotta keep it moving. Megan okay. Kelly's on the other side uh, of this segment. But I want to pick up this conversation again tomorrow because I basically just believe the minstrel shows that we complained about in the 1910s and 20s the, mm. and, and the blackface deal, they just allow uh, black people to play those roles now. We put on our own blackface, put on our own minstrel shows. We're Al Jolson or, or whoever was the greatest minstrel. Is it, did I just, I hope I didn't disparage Al Jolson, but I think he's a minstrel guy. Uh, but anyway, Delano, we're gonna pick it up again tomorrow. Go to youtube.com slash fearless with Jason Whitlock. Hit that subscribe and like button. Megan Kelly, the great Megan Kelly. Nerds! Welcome back to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. All right, we have a very special, or we had a very special uh, guest lined up for today, uh, this final segment of today's show. Uh, But it appears Megan Kelly was unable to make it, and she has sent her college daughter instead to do the interview. So uh, Megan's daughter, uh, welcome to the show and program. because I know that is not Megan Kelly. I was told Megan <laughs> Kelly was over 35. Boy, that Megan, is Megan Kelly, Kelly. You looks like my, it was a <laughs> problem. <laughs> Thank you, my friend. You better That's recognize. Enter this interview in my. Oh, now. man.
uh, Megan, I want to get straight to it. You, you are, you like to mix it up on social media or people like to mix it up with you and you don't back down. Naomi Osaka, the tennis star, you and her have been going back and forth. Uh, where does, <laughs> do, do you, are you picking, are you picking on someone your own size? I know she's 23, she can handle it. She's blocked you. She's scared. She's not as tough as you. What's going on with you and Naomi Osaka? It's actually kind of amusing to me that some are framing it as like, uh, what is a 50-year-old woman doing bullying a 23-year-old young... I'm a journalist. I'm somebody who comments on the news. And she's a public figure who is also a political activist and totally fair game. I mean, she's the one who made herself a public figure in many different ways. So there, there's no age limit in terms of just commenting on the news. Um, so look, I wasn't picking on her. She She came out. She said that the press are annoying. They keep asking the same questions over and over, and therefore I don't want to do press conferences. She got fined. She got a bunch of pushback because she wanted special treatment, and the other athletes all do it. And her sister came out and said, and she's, it's, this isn't about depression. This, When she says mental health, really what she just means is she she doesn't want negative negativity in her world. She That's all. She doesn't want people getting in her head asking her why she can't play as well on clay. And still, there was more pushback. The French Open said, well, you don't get an exception from the press conference for that. So here's a fine. And all the Grand Slam tournaments came out and said, you're going to be fined by us, too. It's part of the deal. It, you actually do get paid for that. And you, you not, you're not getting an exception. Then, and only then, did she turn to, I've got social anxiety. <laughs> here's my big reveal. I've got social anxiety. She'd been criticized for trivializing mental health. You know, chalking it up to, I don't like to be asked about Clay. And finally, she landed in a place that worked better for her from a PR perspective. And that was that. Okay, fine. The world moved on. But then, as we're sitting there, out comes her cover on Vogue Japan. Out comes her cover on Sports Illustrated. Out comes her cover on Time Magazine. Out comes her Barbie. <laughs> I could go on. Her Netflix documentary, which just hit. So this is clearly not a person who dislikes press. She dislikes press that ask her questions she considers tough. And the sports journalists say there are very few of those. When you, when you look at the press conferences with Naomi, they're fawning. They're fawning. Maybe she gets a couple questions about her play on clay, but I mean, it's nothing like what you and I are used to. And so uh, this whole thing has got spun into where we're, we're not allowed to criticize her because I think she represents too many of the liberal pieties, right? She's a woman, she's a mixed race woman, and now she's found her way to talking about mental health in that position. And therefore, the rest of us are supposed to just worship at the altar instead of subject her or her story to questioning. Well, I'm sorry, that's not the job of a journalist and someone who comments on the news. I gotta say this, Megan. And maybe it's, I have some, I'm a bit of a, a chauvinist or whatever. And so I say that to say, the thing that impresses me so much about you is like, you are fearless. In <laughs> everything you just said there, you're not afraid of anything. Have you always been that way? Or did your skin toughen up over 20 years of being in the public eye? Or even as a kid, because for me, 
My, my family can tell you as a seven year old, I was preaching to my family and disagreeing with my parents. And so it was just who I was coming out of the womb. And it almost mm -hmm. feels like that's the same for you, the way you're not afraid of anything. Um, it's true. I, I'm not really afraid of most things. Um, I don't really get nervous or, or scared about entering into the fray. I don't always totally enjoy it. I just said to one of my friends, I, I am like a magnet to steel when it comes to, I need to say what I know to be true, even if it's going to cause trouble for me. I need to, but I'm not quite as hard as a magnet and a steel. So sometimes it does result in blowback or, you know, upset in my own life, but that's fine. I, and I can take it. And by the way, Naomi, so can you. And, and part of what I object to, Jason, because I would say when I got into the practice of law and did that for 10 years and then, you know, journalism now 17, um, you know, you develop the skills like you throw yourself enough times in the Coliseum, you learn how to fight. Right. And you can sort of put different fights into perspective and, and you understand win, lose or draw. I can I can stand my ground like I'm good. I got this. Um, part of that's part of why I object to what's happening right now in our country, which is just the wussification of America. Like w this is actually a great example of it. What's happening with Naomi Osaka, where we take this strong, rich, successful, powerful female athlete who by anybody's standards should be celebrated and cheered on. And I am somebody who did that for her. I mean, I was totally rooting for her when we watched tennis in my in my house. And then we want to convert them into victims. We, we celebrate their actual or perceived or claimed victimization. And the more victimized you can claim you are, the more you get celebrated. And my and so instead, of, if she had come out and said, can I just tell you, I'm going to make a confession. I have social anxiety. I don't really like dealing with these press conferences. I'm going to do it. I may not do it perfectly, but here we go. I would have been like, you go, girl. That's not what happened. I laid out the chronology for you. What I want my kid to do is to say, I see a challenge. Can I meet it? Can I overcome it? And will I feel like a stronger, better, more fierce warrior for myself and my values when I've achieved it, right? When I've at least tried it. Uh, we're running away from that as a society and it, it bothers me. You, you are you are so fearless and it's so impressive. I saw Martina Navratilova came after you in defense of 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 Naomi uh, Osaka. And then I saw that you and Ida Bay Wells from The New York Times in the 1619 Project were going at it. And, and I literally when I was just like reading through your feet, I was like, wow, she catches as much heat and delivers as much heat as I do. And again, that's where I'm saying, like, I got to get over my little chauvinist view, like only a man can be as tough as because I look at you and you're inspiring. And I hope other women, black, white, whomever, other journalists are looking at you the way you're standing in the pocket, taking the blows and giving back. And, and, and that's. Earlier this week, I, uh, or last week, Michael Saranovich or somebody, I tweeted out something in support of you, and Michael Saranovich and some people uh, went, went back at me and after you, and, and, and I was like, well, hold on, man. Let's say she did make some decisions that you or other people disagree with. Why can't we judge Megyn Kelly on where she's at right now? And right now, I see you as one of the great defenders of things that I believe in. We have to do something about critical race theory and the uh, teaching of the 1619 Project in our schools. I, I, I don't, 
I love where you're at right now. There seems to be some people that are more political than I am that have some sort of problem about your career path and whether or not you sold out Donald Trump. Well, I understand that, you know, I, and I harbor no ill will toward Mike or, you know, people who feel that way because Trump was under such massive and nonstop assault. I think they saw some, some people did my tough debate question to him as me sort of joining that team. And it's like when you got to shore up your flank because the entire world is coming at you, you don't want to see people defect from what you think is your flank, right? Like Fox News wasn't supposed to be an organization in, in the mind of many that would go after Trump in that way. I get that feeling. Um, I just, I, I look at it a very different way. My, my own mind was in a very different place, which was it's a presidential debate. It's not softball. I got to throw my, my hard ball at each one of these guys. And I did. You know, I, I asked the toughest possible question I could of each one of them, and they all handled it well, including Trump, you know, but he made a thing out of it. So then it became this snowball uh, where people thought I was on the opposite side of him. And then I was in the position of really having to try hard every night to be fair to Trump because privately I was irritated with him. You know, it was like I had nonstop security because of him. I had all these death threats because of him. It was like my kids were getting harassed. So I'm not going to lie, it wasn't a pleasant time for me thinking about Trump. But if you go back and you look at sort of how I handled him on the Kelly file, I, I put that coverage up against anything you'd see on another channel in terms of its fairness to him. So anyway, I, I get that some Trump supporters still think, all right, that wasn't a fair question. And then she left for NBC, which is the enemy. And I got to say, like a dope, Jason, I mean, I like I didn't see coming the cultural revolution that we're in now. You know, I actually thought I could go to NBC. I, I left because I was unhappy with my hours at Fox, my schedule at Fox, my lifestyle. I, I wasn't seeing my children who were only three, five and seven at the time. I thought I'll go. I'll do this morning show. It'll be like about, you know, stuff that makes you feel good, you know, like finding your faith again or overcoming a big challenge. And then I'll be home by noon. I, I can raise my own kids after all these years at Fox where I never saw my husband or my kids. And I really didn't even think of politics. I told them, I said to NBC before I went, just in case you're thinking that like I'm a closet liberal and I'm going to get over there and I'm going to let my freak flag fly. I'm not. I'm the same person I've always been. They said, great. Well, you can judge for yourself whether they meant that or not. Uh, but you go back and look at the way I covered Kavanaugh, Trump, all the stuff, and you'll see the same old me that you saw on Fox. I just think people had a perception accurate, as it turns out, that NBC was far left. And why would I be joining a team like that? And, uh, and I have to say, in that, they were probably more right than I was. And let me say why I can relate to that, because I think I'm, I know I certainly look a lot older than you, but I'm a little bit older than you. And I was just as naive at one point. I've worked at ESPN twice, once in from about 2003 to some period, 2007 or whatever. And and at that time, ESPN wasn't political. It, it certainly wasn't left wing. It was just a celebration of sports. But I chose to go back in two, 2013, and I didn't see the cultural war and what Thanks. it was going to do. I was the same guy that I, I was earlier, and then I got eaten by that political monster at ESPN that was far left. I was just as naive, and I wouldn't want people to think that there was that it was just some calculated money grab, and I just go whichever way the wind go, blows. 
It, it yeah. wasn't that at all. That's why I can relate to what happened to you at NBC. Yeah, no, Fox offered me more money to stay there. It definitely wasn't about the money. It was about my kids. And I, it would, it'd just been such a brutal couple of years without seeing them. And it was just so acrimonious. And, you know, there was stuff behind the scenes. I wasn't getting along with Bill O'Reilly and all sorts of stuff that you don't need to even. But it, it just, as soon as I sort of got to the top of the power. I'd love there, to know. <laughs> my life went downhill. I mean, look, the, the short of it with Bill is, instead of taking credit for me, which he should have, you know, he was the one who first made my name well known by putting me on his show once a week and then twice a week. He felt threatened by me uh, or my, the numbers that I was putting on the board. That That's my impression, you know, and he started to behave accordingly behind the scenes. I wanted him to be my mentor. In some ways he was. He abandoned that role and really started to come after me behind the scenes. It was just really unpleasant. So it's like, I'm going to work. Trump's kind of coming after me. O'Reilly's not a, an, ad, an advocate or an ally anymore. A lot of other stuff was going on. And it, at the same time, I'm not seeing my children. So it's like, okay, where am I going to go? I'm not going to go to CNN. I knew that even then. There was no way I was going to MS. Um, CBS really wasn't anything interesting there. ABC, same. I was going to go join their morning show and be like, you know, fourth on the totem pole. So this is like my own hour where I could do nicer stories. I wasn't thinking I was going to do cooking. I thought I was going to do like more of an Oprah type show. And it, it wasn't, it's just like on many levels, it didn't work out the way I thought it was going to. And I will say as stressful as my last year or two at Fox were, um, that they didn't compare to that year and a half I was at NBC. That was the most stressful time I've had professionally in my life because it was a square peg round hole and I had no allies. And it was like, what have I gotten myself into? Right. So even though the ending was ugly and painful, when you're dying death by a thousand cuts, the machete is a mercy. So I was ultimately very happy to get out. And so what you're doing now with your own podcast, and I think you're adding, uh, I read uh, the visual component, you're basically you're building your own show. The thing I love is I think you're, you're exactly where you need to be to show your full personality. You've got an awesome sense of humor. Uh, you, you have obviously amazing confidence in yourself. I, I, I'm hoping people are paying attention because, again, I told a friend of mine they were looking for Jeopardy hosts, and I, I knew someone that was involved in their decision making. I was like, Megan Kelly would be perfect. She's uh. strong, powerful, humorous, and I, I kept pushing that behind the scenes. I think you're in a position now to show people your full personality and that over time, whatever little bitterness people have, I just think your personality is going to overwhelm them. Oh, well, thank you for that, Jason. I feel like, look, the in my experience, and this is just my experience, the right is much more forgiving than the left. The right tends to be more people of faith, people who understand, I don't know, just a higher purpose. And they're also used to getting beaten up on all the time and seeing their values diminished every day, everywhere. So my experience is they're pretty quick to forgive, even if they get mad. And having been at Fox so long, I feel like I I can say that wisely. Now the far left, I don't have any interest in getting them. They 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 don't they're not going to like my show. They shouldn't watch my show. I mean they can if they want to, but it's not for them. You know they should be watching Rachel Maddow. That'll be a great program for them. I'm not really looking to to get them. But I think the center left, they're not woke. The the center left, I think, are the people like Thomas Chatterton Williams. You know who. 
he's brilliant on Twitter, and he's he's a more heterodox thinker who's a black man living in France. He happens to be black. Um, and I think somebody like that would listen to my show, uh, even though people might think, you know, you're a liberal and you didn't like Trump. Why would you, you know? So anyway, I think that the pool of people who are available to me is big and getting bigger. And you're right, because I feel like I'm finally in a forum where not only can I show my full personality, but I'm not cancelable. I can say whatever I want to say, and I have been. <laughs> who on the left, high profile, or who has a show? Is there anybody there like you enjoy their show? I'll I'll go first and say, Bill Maher surprises me often. A lot mm-hmm. of times I've been watching his show over the last six months, and I'm like. Man, I, I think this dude has been red pilled. That's a yeah. guy that I like and and think a lot of times he comes from an honest perspective. I like Bill Maher. You know, I sort of love him and hate him in equal degrees. One night I'm like, yes, that was brilliant. And the next time I'm like, oh, God, why is he crapping all over middle America again like a bunch of rubes? Right. So I have this love hate thing with him. But net net, I'll put him in the love category. Um I like, I don't know, like if I were going to turn on CNN, I would watch um, Smirkanish. You know, I think he's he's good. Um, I don't know. There's not that much left, Jason. I got to be honest. I feel, just feel like back before <laughs> the revolution or whatever it is that's happened to our country, I, I would watch uh, Anderson Cooper. Um, I'd watch Wolf Blitzer. You know, they were kind of boring, but they were fair. And that's okay. I can accept that. Boring plus biased, that's in I will not countenance. I'm not going to watch that. And that's where they've gone. So CNN's no longer available. MSNBC is no longer available. So I haven't been watching a lot of TV news. What I do every morning, I go to realclearpolitics.com and I read editorials from the left and the right. And if I'm going to, the, probably the most leftist thing I'll take in is I like the daily, the podcast from the New York times with Michael Barbaro. How about on the right? I'm someone that thinks like Tucker Carlson has ascended to the best talk show host uh, that I've seen. I think he's been the equal of you in terms of his fearlessness, perhaps more fearless because he's sitting on Fox News taking some major shots at the government and uh, sacred cows. Every day. I I, I love what he's doing. Who who is your role model or who, who do you think is the best in the business? beyond myself for you. Who's the best in the business right now? I love Tucker. (laughs) I loved him when I was at Fox and I actually recommended him for the primetime role, which he would, he would tell you as well. Um, I, I, I only have praise for him. I just think he is fearless and he's making a real difference in the national conversation. And he's got the thickest skin of any person in news. Thank God. Um, I love Ben Shapiro. He's, you know, in podcasting, I would say he's my fave. Um, he's just so fun and he's funny. He doesn't get enough credit. I used to put him on the Kelly file all the time. So now it's fun to see him just taking over the media world. Um, I listen to Glenn at the, on the blaze. I love you. Um, there's a lot of good people, like some gals over there. Uncle Jimmy, Uncle Jimmy, (laughs) Uncle Jimmy. My God, how did I forget Uncle Jimmy? What am I doing? (laughs) Uncle Jimmy's my fave. You were such a hit on our show last week, Uncle Jimmy. People were writing in asking for more. Thank you. Um, Okay. So yeah, it's a wide net. It's a wide net. But, uh, I would say I have a lot more people I listen to on the right. I like National Review. Um, those guys are, you know, a little bit more center right than right. But I think it's good to get a variety. 
Let's end on this note. I want you to walk me because you've been pretty outspoken about critical race theory. You're a parent. Uh, they're trying to teach the 1619 project in schools. Try to help my audience understand, and particularly because you know part of what me and Jimmy are doing is outreach to the black community, trying to get them to understand what the conservative side of the argument even is. And so for my community or my audience, help them understand why critical race theory and the teaching of the 1619 Project are just way too divisive for America. Well, I mean, I think 1619 should not be taught in schools because it is non-factual. It's made up and it's been ripped on by critics and historians on both sides of the aisle. That's why it has no business being anywhere near K through 12 education. The critical race theory more broadly, in a nutshell, I'll quote Chief Justice John Roberts, the answer to racism is not more racism. And if you wanted to look at today's K through 12 education and say, how can we take these kids who are living in the most multicultural, diverse society in the world right now, d democracy in the world, and create little racists, what would the answer be? It would be critical race theory. It would be divide them by race, tell them one group is worse because of their race, one group is inferior and unable to help itself because of its race, and see how that goes. That is what's happening. And I didn't read it in a textbook or see it in a news report. I lived it. I have three kids, uh, one of whom just moved out of elementary school, but the three of them have been in it, living it in New York. And it's been horrifying. And New York is, I mean, our school, in my boys' school, we were in the minority as, as a white family. This is a very diverse school. All of our schools have been. And yet they're taking kids who are naturally loving of one another, supportive of one another, completely great friends with one another and teaching them that they're different, they should be divided and there should be resentments between them. And honestly, Jason, when I saw that, I'm like, we're out of here, that you're not doing that to my kids. So, you know, when you are faced with this, as so many parents are now, and it's not just conservatives, it's, I've talked to a lot of liberals who feel this way too. They're on our team. That's why, by the way, we should not be talking about conservatives and liberals right now on this fight. We should be talking about woke and non-woke because our non-woke crowd is a lot bigger than just conservatives. So let's not limit our team. Um, the, people need to be prepared to get called names because that's what the left does, right? The, the, that's, what the, that's what the woke do. Call you bigots, they called you a racist, they call you a white supremacist, right? You're a race, white supremacist, Larry Elder's white supremacist. I'm an, I'm an internalized misogynist, I don't know. You're gonna get called names, who cares? Fight right? Fight. Because this is for our kids, our future. And the more they indoctrinate these kids with these insane David Duke type messaging, the more we have to worry about our future for, for our country, right? So get in the game. It may be hard. You may not be like what you see about yourself in the paper or the school circular. Um, I don't care at this point. Get in the game. Megan, thank you so much. Uh, this is Megan Kelly's daughter. I hope her mom can come on the show next time. That would be great. Who knew Megan Kelly's daughter was just as smart as her mom? I mean, she's just a kid. She's as smart as her mom. You guys are I like amazing. The mama. <laughs> I like the mama. I'm going to tell you. We'll get her next time. Thank you, Megan. Hey, dog, dog. See you soon. <laughs> All right, YouTube.com slash fearless with Jason Whitlock. Coming up, we'll do our approval rating on Maria Taylor. Thanks!
Cause I believe you know regrets and our decisions We don't wanna go to heaven with freedom It's my obligation, no hate, discrimination Raising up your hands for freedom Welcome back to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. Final segment of the show. Let's get to our approval rating. Do it. A former ESPN broadcaster. She's allegedly headed to NBC where she'll raise hell over there. I've called her the Circe Circe Lannister of broadcasting, Maria Taylor. I call her the left eye Lopez (laughs) of the industry. She kind of remind me of that. That's some old left eye Lopez shit. Are you making waterfalls? Is that what the song? Did I get that right? No, man. Left eye Lopez was dating Andre Rising and burnt up, burnt down his house in Atlanta. I know, but didn't TLC do a song called Waterfalls? Don't go chasing waterfalls. Don't go chasing waterfalls. Yeah. Yeah, that's I was making that reference. Dating. Yeah, they also did a song called Scrub. See, they was in part of that. I don't want no scrub. Scrub. Yeah, Yeah, remember? And she burned down Andre Rising. And she burned down Andre Rising. Cersei Lannister burned down all of King's Land. Exactly. And how Maria Taylor burned down all of ESPN. Exactly. Burnt up all of Stephen A. Smith's tennis shoes. All right, so let's get to this approval rating. Uh, Job performance. As of right now, Jim, she's jobless. Really? Yeah, she's job. She just it has not been announced. She's going to NBC, so she's jobless. Now her job prospects are strong, so I'm not going to totally eliminate her job performance. But I've only got it at a four right now. Uh, right about now, I don't know what job you think she's doing, but whatever job she's doing, she gets a 25 for me because she's doing the hell out of this job. <laughs> Jim. I don't think the Armorall job is open. You can quit pandering to get that Armorall job. Uh, right now, yeah. she, she's at the head of that table with all them alphabets she got behind her. She's <laughs> running that show right now. <laughs> all right, so you're giving her a perfect score of 25. Yes, sir. Uh, character, I, I'm just sorry. I don't like the way she took a dump on Rachel Nichols, Dave Lamont, Drew Brees. It, she took a dump on everybody trying to get this money. She, she is definitely, we had Bizzle on early in the week. She's, she's money over God, not God over money. So I, I give her a two in character. If she is all of that that you say, yeah. you can't be mad at her. She's staying true to her character. I give her a 24. <laughs> Got to stay true to the game. <laughs> Authenticity. As I said in my monologue to start the show, I think she's being authentic. She is authentic to the black matriarchy. And, uh, you know, 55 years of programming and celebrating and worshiping of and the black woman can do no wrong. She's authentic to that because she can do no wrong. This whole little money grab deal, she turned it into a, a story how she, she was doing this for the culture. She was doing this for all the black women. In the, she needed that $8 million a year so that black women could breathe again. So they could wait to exhale or so they could exhale. So I think she's authentic. I'll give her a 20. I give her a 25. <laughs> I have it from a reliable source yeah. that she there she has not had one ounce of implants in them legs. <laughs> <laughs> All natural. Can't get no more authentic than that. There's some truth to that. And that's why, as it relates to it factor, I'm damn near at a perfect 25. Because I, I can't look, I can say whatever, I can criticize Maria Taylor all I want. She got that it factor now. Hey. She, she lights up that camera. Yes, she I'm does. Just, when that camera's on her, she looks damn good. She got the it factor. 
I'm going to be honest with you, and I'm, I feel ashamed for saying this. First of all, for the it factor, I give her a 24. Yeah. I look at Maria Taylor on TV, and I turn into R. Kelly. My mind's telling me no, <laughs> but my body, my body's telling me yes. <laughs> she blazing hot, baby. Blazing hot. No, Jim, the song you should have gone with oh, is actually Key Sweat. You may be young, but you're ready. She's 35, man. Come on. She's 35. You 65. God damn it. She's still ready, but I damn 35 ain't young. Yes, she, she ain't got no trade-in value. Come on, man. So, uh, coming up on 100,000 miles when you get 35. Come on, man. I screwed up that. Uh, Key Sweat, I can't sing at all. No, you I should have played. I should have gave that to you. Anyway, uh, I got her an overall score. I still have her as a dumpster fire, 49. That's what I, ha- I had her. I actually had her lower previously uh, at a 45, but she's still a dumpster fire, in my opinion, 40. And you got her at a damn near perfect score at 98. Because she was a candlelit that was left unattended. <laughs> Are you going to light that fire? And no, it, it, it done got lit now. She, <laughs> she blazing out of control. <laughs> All right, we had a great show today. Delano did a nice job. I set a fire early, and Megan Kelly came in and cleaned it up. Great show. We'll see you tomorrow.